Well, good morning to all of you, including those of you tuning in from the chapel in Galleria here at Central Campus, those of you uh, viewing in from the Northwest Regional Center, also those of you at our regional town in Bridgeland, our home church network, and other venues in the province. May God bless you as you serve him where you're at. You know, one of the privileges I have as a pastor is being invited to officiate weddings. I have the best view at weddings because I'm only just a few feet uh, from the happy couple. I see the trembling hands. I see the loving winks. Uh, I, I hear the whispers, I love you. You know, uh, oh, you're so beautiful. And, uh, and, and even when the entire uh, wedding party winces as the cousin uh, of the bride butchers yet another love song, um, the special couple, they're just so crazy in love that they don't even notice. And, and often in that moment, I pray for the couple that the tender love and affection that they're experiencing and feeling right at that moment, that, that it will still be there in even stronger measure in five years and beyond. And I pray that prayer because we live in a broken world where love tends to diminish over time. You see, when I meet with a couple prior to their marriage, um, they often float into my office with a serious case of lovesickness. Uh, they sit there with this silly grin on their faces, and all they see is the good in the other. I ask them about any concerns they might have, you know, about marrying this person that's sitting next to them. And she says, well, you know, he's... He's selfish, and he's, he's stubborn, and he's temperamental, but I love him anyways, and I know it's just going to be okay. And, you know, and, and he takes it all in stride. I mean, his bride has just called him selfish, uh, stubborn, and temperamental, and, and yet he smiles and says, isn't she wonderful? <laughs> I, I mean, she knows me so well, and she loves me anyways. Well, sometime after the wedding, you know, they beg to see me again. And the moment they enter the room, I can tell that things have changed. They're not lovesick anymore. They're just sick. <laughs> Mostly of each other. And I ask, what's the problem? And she says, he isn't the man that I married two years ago. I say, how so? And she says, he's selfish, stubborn, and temperamental. <laughs> no kidding. And I'm waiting to, her, to hear her follow up that by saying, but I love him anyways. I'm waiting for her to reach over as she did two years previous in my office and take his hand and stroke it. But it's obvious from the body language that uh, the roaring bonfire has been replaced by a block of ice. I turn to him hoping, of course, to see that optimistic smile I saw previously but instead, all I see is this cold stare. And he says, I'm sick and tired of her trying to psychoanalyze me and constantly nagging me about all the things that I'm not, all the things I'm not doing. And it's obvious that romance has been replaced by a healthy dose of reality. And rather than being the object of affection, their mate has become the target of their frustrations. As much as they could see no wrong in each other before marriage, now they can see no good, no right. 
When resentment is deep like this, unless a couple want either an affair or a divorce, they have to start making some concrete choices. And those choices is what I want to talk about in this message that come out of yet another uh, key message that God gave through his prophet Malachi to the people of his day. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And as you do, uh, I'm going to give a brief history of the events leading up to the writing of this book. It's been well over a hundred years now since the Jewish people were freed from captivity in Babylon and given permission to return to their beloved city of Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt and overall life is good. Life is comfortable and everything is running pretty smoothly. Now I don't know if you've ever noticed when life is running along smoothly Boredom can set in. Indifference can set in. And this is exactly what happened to the children of Israel. They became cynical toward God. They became indifferent to his commands. They were only interested in God for what he could do for them. And when he didn't come across with the goods, then they didn't have much interest in him. Even though they went through the religious motions, they gave God their leftovers rather than their very best, which we talked about last time. Furthermore, the people of that day were bored with their spouses. They had a cavalier disregard for the covenant of marriage. And it, is, it was during this time that God called Malachi to express his grave concern over uh, the attitudes concerning marriage and divorce at that time. And so would you stand with me as we read a portion of this chapter together? Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has desecrated the sanctuary. The Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and your wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for your words. Thank you for the words you spoke through the prophet Malachi to the people of that day. Lord, this subject of our marriage covenant, this subject of the selection of a mate, all of these things are dear and near to your heart, Lord, and they are so relevant to our, our, our society and our world today. I pray that you would... Uh, 
just open every one of our ears, Lord, and, and, and Lord, that you would uh, inc- help us to stay focused on what you would have to say to us, and then give us the courage, Lord, to respond as you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in the passage that we just read together, Malachi is essentially saying three things to the people of his day. First of all, he's saying, you have become superficial about who you choose as a marriage partner. The second thing is, you become flippant about divorce, and you become flippant about being faithful to your spouse. And then the third thing he says is, you've broken faith with your spouse in terms of loving and treasuring them. In confronting these areas of concern, Malachi is really pointing them and us today to three foundational principles for building strong marriages, which we're going to look at. According to Malachi, the first key to building a strong marriage is to marry someone who is spiritually compatible with you. In verse 11, Malachi basically communicates this principle, but he does it in the negative. He says, Judah has broken faith by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, I do want you to notice that the issue here is not a race issue. It is not a physical issue. It is a spiritual issue. God wants his followers to marry spouses who are aligned with them spiritually. From the beginning of time, God made it very clear that we are to worship Him and Him alone. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. God wants to be the object of our highest affection and he knows that if his people marry spouses who worship other gods or spouses who don't believe in God at all over time there is a high probability that the unbelieving spouse will influence the believing spouse and the children of the marriage to drift in their devotion to the one and true God You just read the life of Solomon in the scriptures and you will see how that happens and how it happened to what the scriptures refer to as the wisest man who ever lived. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14, we read this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now let me be clear, this passage is not saying that an unbelieving person is second-rate or is inferior. God loves all of his children. In this passage, God is simply challenging us to put our thinking caps on and to consider the implications of marrying someone who is not spiritually aligned to us. He's saying, don't get entangled in a serious relationship with someone who has different spiritual goals than you do. Because if you do, you won't be able to share the greatest part of who you are. Let me explain it with an illustration. Suppose that your future spouse, for whatever reason, 
does not like your best friend? What if he said to you, you know, dear, I love you, but I just have no interest, I have no feelings for your best friend. I don't mind if you see her. I don't mind if you spend a couple hours visiting with her on Sunday morning. You go ahead and do that, but please, don't come back home and talk to me about your conversation with her. Don't invite her over for dinner when I'm here. And don't ask me to join you in spending time with her. Now, over time, one of two things will happen. Either your marriage will begin to fade and die, or your friendship with your best friend will die or at least cool down significantly. Well, you see, the same thing happens when you love the Lord and your spouse doesn't. You're going to be torn between two lovers, as it were. And, it, and that just doesn't work very well. You know, I can handle the fact that there are some things that I like that my wife Gwen you know, can do without. But it would be torture for me not to be able to share my greatest friend, Jesus, with her. If I couldn't talk to her and our family about what Jesus means to me, if I couldn't discuss with them what Jesus is showing me in the scriptures or what he is teaching me uh, from his word, if I couldn't join with her in praying about challenges we're facing or fears we're going through or, or storms that we're facing like we faced a number of years ago when I was struck with cancer, if I couldn't get on my knees with her before God and, and, and together as a couple bring these things to him, I would be devastated. It would feel like there is just this big gaping hole in our relationship. And I can't tell you the number of men and women who over the years have shared with me how hard it is, how extremely lonely it is for them to have to keep their love for God private outside of their marriage. How confusing it is for their children to have one parent who worships Jesus and to have another parent who at times uses the name of Jesus only as a swear word. You know, if for no other reason, it just makes good common sense to be spiritually compatible with your partner. Just take the scriptures and put them aside if you've got a problem with the scriptures. Just use common sense. A study done a while back on 13,000 marriages where spiritual incompatibility existed found that the odds are five times greater that your marriage will unravel if you and your spouse are spiritually incompatible. And folks, you see, that is the pain that God wants to spare you from. His intent isn't to be unreasonable or cruel or to make an unbelieving partner feel like he's a, he or she is a second-class citizen. He loves everyone, and it is precisely because of his immense love for us that he challenges us to seek a spouse who is passionate about God as we are. Now, having said that, let me quickly add that 
while spiritual compatibility is very important. You can't base your decision on that factor alone. You need to also give serious consideration to a person's character. I mean, just because someone says, I'm a Christian, doesn't mean that they'd be a good spouse. You need to carefully evaluate their personality, their character, their values. Character is who you are when only God is looking. It's not hard for someone to say, I want to serve God with all of my life. But how do they spend their time? What makes their adrenaline flow? How drawn are they to prayer and to worship and to serving others? How sensitive are they to you and to listening to you? How well do they respect your convictions? How well do they respect authority? How responsible are they? How much do they display the fruit of the Spirit? In other words, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All that to say that the formation of strong marriages requires carefully and prayerfully choosing a life partner who is spiritually compatible with you and secondly, who has godly character. Now I just want for a moment to talk to those of you who are married to someone who, who doesn't share your faith in Christ. I've already had numerous conversations with people this weekend who are in this situation. And I want to challenge you not to beat yourself up for having made that decision because I'm running into people who are. They love their husbands or their wives. They just wish that they had followed God's standard because their life isn't going the direction they'd planned for it to go. There's all kinds of frustrations, there's all kinds of challenges that, and disappointments that I talked about a moment ago that they're facing and the, the plan uh, and the path of their life is going to be different and that is probably your situation and that is part of what you need to accept. But don't get bitter, don't get angry because it will just add more pain, not only to your life, but also to your marriage. And God doesn't want that. I want to say to you that God can still use you to make something beautiful out of your marriage. He can redeem all of this. He can still use you to draw your spouse to himself. As long as you stay close to him and you pray for your marriage and you love your spouse the way that God calls you to love your spouse, my word to you is, is don't give up hope and don't seek a way out. Just seek to be the spouse that God calls you to be and let God take care of the rest. That's the first principle for building strong marriages. Choosing a spouse who's spiritually compatible to you. A second principle is to be committed to your spouse. 
Beginning in verse 13, Malachi confronts their casual attitude toward divorce and their marriage covenant. And he challenges them not to break faith with their spouse. And then if you look down to verse 16, God says he hates divorce. Now please note, it doesn't say he hates divorced people. No, he loves divorced people as much as anyone else. He hates divorce because of the pain, the destruction it brings to the lives of those who are involved. Greg Lafferty documents some of the latest research on the effect of divorce on, on women and men and children. And before I share the information, I, I, I want to remind you that even though um, this information is true for many men, women, and children, it is not necessarily true for everyone. But when it comes to women, a divorce will sap 85% of a woman's energy just to keep an emotional even keel through the day. It will cut her standard of living by two-thirds. It will make them angrier and more aggressive and violent with their children. It will produce in them anxiety, worry, and depression for as long as a decade after the divorce happens. As for men, divorce makes men two times more likely to have heart problems, three times more likely to commit suicide, seven times more likely to contract pneumonia, and ten times more likely to die at any, at any given age. And then there are the effects of divorce on children. Again, according to Lafferty, longitudinal studies between 10 to 25 years that have been done on children tell us that anger and depression and underachievement in school will continue for a decade in most cases. Folks, that is why God hates divorce. Now, for those of you who have experienced marital breakdown or are in a hurtful marital situation right now, I realize that today's message, at least at first glance, may be difficult to hear and you may be tempted to check out. I want to encourage you to hang in there to the end because this passage is not about resurrecting the pain of past failures or that part of our lives that we really can't do anything about anymore. Now, if through this message, God makes you aware that you haven't forgiven someone who hurt you or that you need to make things right with someone that you have hurt in your past, then I challenge you to do so because resentment kills. Resentment binds you to your past. It binds you. It connects you to the person who's hurt you. And it will continue to keep you bound up. Whereas God's gift of forgiveness sets you free. So allow God to set you free by his grace. But other than this issue of forgiveness, the focus of this message is not about the past, but about making your present, your future marriage stronger. Now, in addition, it's important that I point out that Malachi's words here aren't directed at those people whose divorces are irretrievable and who have repented of the past 
and the part they played in the breakdown of that relationship. Nor are Malachi's words here directed at those who are victims of abuse or are victims of their mate's determination to flee the marriage or to destroy their marriage. Neither are these words of Malachi directed at those who have been the primary reason for the divorce, but who have since then humbled themselves and asked God and their spouse to forgive them and have been willing to seek help for their destructive addictions and to do whatever it takes to learn to be the kind of spouse that they ought to be. And so with that in mind, here was what was happening in the days of Malachi. A lot of the Israeli men were experiencing what we refer to today as a midlife crisis. They were somewhat bored. They had time on their hands. And so they began to flippantly divorce their wives so that they could run off with younger and more attractive Canaanite women. And sadly, when a man divorced his wife like this in that culture, she, along with her children, were often left destitute on the street with no rights, no means of support, nowhere to go. And God was incensed by this and the way that the marriage covenant was being trampled upon. And so in verse 13, this is what God says. He says, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now, in this passage, we're given three reasons for honoring our marriage vows. The first is, is because God witnesses our marriage vows. You see, the reality is marriage is, is not just a contract between two people. That's kind of the modern-day thinking about marriage. It's just a contract that two people enter into. No, it's much more serious than that. It is a covenant between three people, a man, a woman, and God. And in verse 14, God says, not only did I witness your wedding vows the day that you made them, but I am constantly witnessing whether or not you're keeping them. God takes our marriage vows very seriously. And so must we. A further reason for honoring our marriage vows is so our worship and our prayers are not hindered. God essentially says here, don't be under the illusion that your worship is acceptable to me or that your prayers are acceptable to me when the way you treat your spouse is unacceptable to me. That's a very sobering thought. But we see it taught through the Scriptures. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter says, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. 
You see, it all ties together. We are kidding ourselves when we think that we can give God our leftovers. When we think that we can um, get away with not giving God our best. Or when we think that we can mistreat our spouse. Or we can cheat on our spouse through an affair or through, uh, uh, through porn on the internet. Or hold a grudge against someone. And still be in close relationship with God. I mean, if our relationship with God, with others, isn't where it should be, then our relationship with God isn't where it should be. I mean, in the communion passage, what did the Lord say? He said, if you've got an issue, if there's a problem between you and somebody else, you go and you make it right first. A third reason we are called to honor our marriage vows is so our lives and our marriages will point people to God. In verse 15, we read here, Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. Folks, I remind you that the theme of the story of God through the Old Testament is that ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, God has been seeking to bring all of his offspring into right relationship with himself. Toward that end, God made a covenant with Abraham. And even though time and time again, Abraham or his children didn't keep their end of the bargain or the covenant. God continued to be faithful and honor his covenant. Our God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. 2 Timothy 2, 3, 13 says, If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. God says, I take my covenant seriously. I will keep my covenant with you no matter what. And God wanted Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, to be faithful to their covenant, not only so that they could enjoy a close relationship with him, but also so that other nations surrounding them would be drawn to God through their godly lives. And church, God's mission hasn't changed. In the same way that he hoped to reveal himself to the world through the nation of Israel, today he wants to reveal himself through us, his church. And what that means in practical terms is God wants us to be doggedly committed to our marriage vows, our child dedication vows, and all that comes with that so that the people around us will come to know God through the example of our lives, through the example uh, of our marriages and our family life. Now, you know, I'm convinced that many people don't realize that, that God's mission, His call in our lives, is one of the key reasons that He wants us to be faithful to our marriage vows. In fact, many people today are being misguided by some unbiblical teaching that's going on in certain church circles that places a lot of emphasis on the here and now. 
A lot of emphasis on God wanting me to be happy in this life. A lot of emphasis on God wanting me to be fulfilled, on God wanting me to really enjoy life, on God really wanting me to be healthy and prosperous and experience the good life. It's totally myopic, totally centered on the here and now, the temporary rather than the eternal. And so you see, here's a woman who's bought into this theology, this way of thinking. Who says to herself one day, you know, I'm not happy in my marriage. Not that, not that her husband has been unfaithful to her or abusive to her. It's just that her marriage isn't what she thinks it should be. And so she reasons, since God wants me to be happy and to enjoy this life, surely he wouldn't expect me to stay in this boring, stifling relationship. Surely he has more for me than this and he doesn't expect me to live in this unhappy unfulfilling relationship the rest of my life now let me be clear god is not against happiness or enjoying this life but it is not his highest desire for us it is not the main reason he created us as I said a moment ago, his highest call and desire for us is no different than it was for Abraham and Abraham's children. And that is for us to first of all have a close friendship with him and then out of the overflow of that relationship that people would see God's reality in us. I mean, this life is short, folks. We're just passing through. Eternity is forever. And God's really concerned about that. And you see, that's one more reason why God wants us to honor our vows. Greg Lafferty says, whatever the people in our world are going to know about God, they are going to know primarily by observing us. They are going to see in the mirror of our lives, in the mirror of our marriages, in the mirror of our families, what God is like. That he is a loving God. That he is a covenant-keeping, faithful God because they see love and faithfulness in our lives, in our marriages. Let me illustrate this by telling you about one such marriage. In his book, A Promise Kept, Robertson McKilkin writes about his 40-year marriage to his wife, Muriel. He tells how Muriel was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and began a long, slow descent. He was president of a seminary at that time. He arranged for someone to stay at home with her and care for her while he was away at the office. After two years, it became increasingly difficult to keep Muriel at home. As soon as he got up to leave, she would get up and she would follow him. When he was with her, she was content. When he wasn't, she was distressed. The seminary was a mile or so away from their home. And some days, Muriel would make that trip as many as ten times just to see him. Sometimes at night, he says, when he would help her to undress, he found bloody feet.
In time, Robertson decided to resign from his presidency so he could devote himself full-time to the care of his wife. When people marveled at the devotion he had to his wife and the sacrifice he was prepared to make for his wife, his response was, had I not promised 42 years ago in sickness and in health until death parts us? Neither does he have an attitude of being a martyr. He writes, she is a delight to me. I don't have to care for her. I get to. She is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person that she is, the wife I always loved. Daily I see manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. And then he writes about a time that he traveled with her. And they had to wait for a couple of hours in an airplane terminal, airport terminal. And this was a significant challenge for him because every few minutes she would get up and she would um, uh, insist on taking a fast-paced walk down one of the terminals looking for something she could never find. And they would just barely get back and then a few minutes later she would bolt up again and away she would go. And he would follow her, of course, and he said she was an extremely fast walker. I almost had to run next to, keep, next to her to keep up with her. And this went on for quite some time. And while this was going on, there was this attractive woman executive who sat across from them, was working on her computer, and she mumbled something. And he said, did you say something to me? Oh, she said with a smile, I was just asking myself, will I ever find a man who will love me like that? You see, folks, that is how our lives speak. That is how our marriages speak. In a world where so few are faithful, where so few are committed to much of anything, when we are faithful, when we are loving, other people are drawn to the God that we serve, the God who is faithful, loving, and caring. Friends, if you're married, you made a promise. And that promise wasn't just for a while. It was for life. Proverbs 5.15 says, Be faithful to your own wife and give her your love alone. This means that you're saying to God, you're saying to each other, regardless of what challenges we face, whether you love me back or not, I have decided by God's grace I will never be unfaithful to you. It means communicating to those around you by your words and your actions that I intend to be faithful to my spouse. Don't even think about flirting with me. I'm off the market. I've made a vow. It means to stop dreaming about what life might be like with someone else. 
It is creating your own romantic story with your partner that's based on reality rather than fantasy. And when you make a decision to honor your vow, to be a covenant keeper, you are laying a foundation that will bring stability to your life and your marriage in the midst of the greatest storms. And then finally, a a final principle for building strong marriages is to treasure your spouse. This is the other side of the coin of faithfulness. You see, honoring your vows involves more than promising not to leave your spouse. It involves more than promising not to cheat on your spouse. That's very important, of course. But honoring your vows also means promising to invest daily into making your marriage all that God wants it to be. Malachi says, so guard yourself in your spirit. Guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Part of not breaking faith with your spouse is to stay true to your commitment to loving and to treasuring them. For example, cheating on your spouse may be the last thing that's on your mind, but if you are upset with your wife, you know, she ticked you off, and you determine to make her pay by avoiding her, not giving her eye contact, deliberately working longer hours at the office just to stay away from her and to teach her a lesson, then you in that are breaking your vow. Well, you say, come on, pastor. I, I didn't leave her. You know, I didn't even yell. I didn't throw anything. Well, good for you. But the truth is, you were angry with her. You wanted to make her pay. And in doing so, you weren't loving or treasuring her. In short, God says, you broke your vow. Turning a cold shoulder at bedtime because you're upset with your spouse. Justifying your sexual frustration in your marriage by regularly entertaining lustful thoughts through sexually explicit entertainment. Or escaping into romance novels or soap operas. Or fantasizing what it might be like to be with some, some other person. All of these are breaking your vow. You are not treasuring your spouse. Now in Luke chapter 6... Jesus sheds some light on how to treasure each other on a consistent basis by differentiating between human love and divine love. Jesus describes human love this way. In verse 32, he says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Human love is a feeling that depends on the person who is loved. You do good to those who do good to you. In marriage, human love says, as long as you are nice to me, well, then I'll be nice to you. Human love says, as long as I can be proud of you, as long as you stay attractive and you stimulate me, as long as you behave and meet my needs, as long as you make my life exciting and fun, well, then I'll love you back and treasure you as well. 
But if you change, my love for you changes. That's human love. And the problem with human love is it's not strong enough to weather the storms that will come into many of our lives and many of our marriages. All of us are going to face disappointment in life. Plans are not always going to turn out the way that we wanted them to. We're going to get older. Our, our looks are going to change. Our bodies are going to change. And if someone says, oh, you still look like you did 30 years ago, they need to get a set of glasses. Jesus says when you face hardships and disappointments, when your plans don't turn out the way you hoped they would, you're going to need more than human love. In verse 27, he says, you're going to need a divine love. But I tell you, this is what verse 27 says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus says divine love is so deep and durable that it even loves enemies. Divine love endures even when a spouse begins, begins to feel more like an enemy than a friend. And that is because human love is a feeling that focuses on what the other person is or isn't doing. Whereas divine love is a decision that focuses on my responsibility to fulfill my commitment and to being the person that God has called me to be. You know, people tell me that they think they, they must have married the wrong person because they shouldn't have to work so hard to make it work, to make their marriage work. And when I hear that, I just want to lovingly give their head a shake and say, get real. A good marriage isn't some syrupy, Hollywood, airy-fairy, butterfly kisses dream that just kind of magically floats along and comes into our lives without any effort or commitment. Let's get re realistic about marriage, folks. A good marriage, like a vibrant relationship with Jesus, is going to cost you all that you have. It's going to require you to put the interests and the needs of your partner ahead of yourself in all things, and that's not going to feel good most of the time. A good marriage isn't about, you know, we compromise, we do the 50-50 thing. No, a good marriage is giving 100%. Now, I don't know about you, but... I find that doing what I just said doesn't come naturally. I find that it cuts against the grain of my personality and my, my pride. It requires constant discipline, patience, plain hard work, and just a big dose of humility and lots of prayer. I'm always fighting for my will to be done rather than Gwen's will to be done. But you see, folks, that's reality. And the sooner we accept that, the better our marriages will be. Divine love is a decision to trust 
to respect the other person and to believe the best about the other person's intentions. Divine love is a decision to be kind, to be tender-hearted and patient. Divine love is a decision to build up the other person rather than tearing down the other person. It's a decision to honor your vow even when it doesn't feel good or easy. So how you doing with your vow? How you doing with for richer or poor, in sickness or health, patient or impatient, hunky or chunky, <laughs> passive or aggressive, responsible or irresponsible? How you doing with your vow? I'll close with this. Nancy Ortberg tells of a particular evening that she and her husband John were visiting with some friends. And toward the end of the evening, he asked the group, tell us about the happiest day of your life. And Nancy's first thought in response to that question surprised her so much that she had to be quiet for a time just to think and to hold back the emotions that were welling up inside of her. And so the fellow next to her started off by saying, the happiest day of my life was when I finally returned back home from Vietnam. And other people around the table began to share and talked about, in some cases, the day that they were married or the day that their children were born and on and on it went. And then Nancy writes this. When everybody else was done and it was my turn, I said the happiest day of my life was when I was eight years old. You see, back then my parents were separated and moving towards divorce. I remember that year vividly because I was the only kid in our school whose parents were separated. It was so unusual back in the 1960s. But that was not painful at all compared to what I was dealing with at home where I would see my dad only every other weekend. I loved my dad. My dad was an alcoholic, but he was the nicest alcoholic you would ever want to meet. And over time, near the end of his life, he committed his life to Jesus Christ. He found victory over his addiction. He was a changed man. My mom was a typical codependent. I was an only child. And the only time I saw my dad was when he would take me for the, for the weekend and then bring me home. My dad would stand on one side of the screen door in the kitchen and my mom on the other side. And they would fight through the screen door. And I would stand in the middle of them trying to get them to stop. And then I would run into the other room and I'd turn the television on really loud so I didn't have to hear them fight. In the third grade, I had a teacher who was a Christ follower. And she would let me come to, into her classroom in the morning before the other kids showed up and she would pray with me. I'm sure she wanted me to pray that God's will, I'm sure that she wanted to pray that God's will would be done. But I was eight years old. 
And I didn't really care what God's will was. The only thing I wanted, the only thing I would let her pray was that my parents would get back together. One night in May, my mom took me out to dinner and my dad joined us. It was the first time I'd seen them together and not fight. Somewhere in the conversation, my mom said to me, Nancy, how would you feel about your dad moving back home? And Nancy said, I'd love it. And the next day, I ran into my teacher's room and I told her what had happened. And it was without a doubt the happiest day of my life. As an eight-year-old kid, it changed my life that I had both parents in my home. They kept fighting. They didn't have a perfect marriage, but they made strides and they changed and they grew in their marriage. Nancy says, it was the most powerful decision the two of them made that affected me. Now folks, we all know that it doesn't always turn out this way. I stand before you as one individual who did everything I could at the age of 14 to get my mom and dad together. But it didn't happen. It was the saddest day of my life. And as I said earlier, if you've gone through divorce, I'm just really not trying to put anyone on a guilt trip. Unless you are a callous, uncaring, unfeeling person, I know you've wept many tears. You've hurt deeply over the breakdown of your marriage. And I'm sure there have been many times that you would have wished that you could rewind the tape and have a do-over. But some things can't be changed. They need to be accepted and left behind. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had a lot of regrets. But he was able to live in victory because, as he said, he said, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. And that is the focus, as I said, of this message on what is ahead. On those of you who are married, those marriages where there is still a glimmer of hope, I just want to say to you, in closing, there are so many reasons to fight for your marriage. So many reasons to say, I will forgive. So many reasons to say, I will love. I will respect. So many reasons to say, I will get the help I need to find victory over my destructive addiction. So many reasons to say, I will give it another try. So many reasons to say, I will humble myself before God and begin to invest all that I have into my marriage rather than seeking a way out. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're sitting next to your spouse, I want you to reach over and take each other's hands right now. Husbands, 
Perhaps God has been speaking to you about how unloving you've been to your wife. And you want to ask her for, your forgive, for her forgiveness. You're committed to your marriage. You want to love your wife with a divine love. After this service, you want to talk more about how you can love each other more dearly. If that's your desire, then just squeeze her hand right now. Wives, God has been speaking to you perhaps about how disrespectful, unkind you've been to your husband and you want to ask for his forgiveness. You're committed to your marriage. You want to love your husband with a divine love and you too want to talk about how you can just create a bonfire of love again between you. If that's your desire, then just squeeze his hand right now. For those of you who aren't married, has the Holy Spirit made you aware of someone in your life that you haven't forgiven? Someone that you hold a grudge against? Someone that you are still very angry with? I challenge you to come clean with God on this and to extend forgiveness to that individual. Has God brought to your attention someone that you're mistreating? Someone just by the way that you interact with them. It's just evident that you don't value them. Is there someone that, like that in your life and you need to ask God right now to help you to love them with a divine love. I encourage you to do that right now as well. Just take a moment and have a little talk with God about what he's spoken to you about. stand with me for a closing prayer please Heavenly Father I just want to thank you for your clear instructions in the scriptures regarding marriage Lord we need you we cannot love with a divine love without you we need your strength we need your wisdom we need your compassion. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been unloving, where we have been disrespectful. We open our hearts to you, O Lord. And we choose today to love even when we are not loved in return. To respect even when we are not respected in return. We truly want to be like Jesus. For your glory for the sake of a world without Jesus, I pray. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you 
his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.